Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. This is part two of our conversation and journey with James Finley, one of my new heroes, a man who went to hell and came back with the gifts of wisdom, compassion, joy, and deep humility. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. So I'd like to say something about this broken, like the broken off, the root trauma, the root broken place. Here's an example that I use. Imagine a married couple, and they're in the midst of what every married couple's done over and over. They're sitting together, going through the week's chores for the week, like the dental appointment, get the car fixed, and call so-and-so, like this. And as they're winding down the meeting, she says to him, you know, I last night I didn't sleep well last night, and I was lying awake, and I had an insight about us. I don't know if this is the right time or not to bring it up. And I said, no, no, what is it? What is it? She says, you know, before we met, actually, I didn't know a love like this existed. This is one of the fortunate couples who can say this to each other. Mm-hmm. It's a path to get there sometimes, which is its own story. And he says back to her, me either. And um, she says, the thing is, really, it's gotten so deep. And he said, it has gotten so deep. And she says, I suppose if we keep going this way, it's going to get deeper. He says, I suppose so. And then she says, and this is the axial moment. See? She says, I wonder if we'll ever get to a depth of love so deep, there'll be no deeper depth of love to get to. And what she's really asking, is there an end to love? And when she asked it, her heart already knows the answer. They'll never get to the end because there's no end to the endlessness of love. I'd I'd like to take it one more step, which is the mystical part. There's the realization, mainly barely discernible, that this bottomless abyss of love in which they're making their descent is welling up and completely giving the abyss-like depth of itself away in and as the preciousness of this moment with each other, which renders it sacred and precious and divine. So I really do think that Sometimes on this spiritual path, sometimes we're waiting for this big thing to happen. Big things do, they can happen. But actually, it's the opposite. I think we're trying to calibrate our heart to a finer and finer scale to begin to discern the abyss-like generosity of inhaling and exhaling, the view out the kitchen window, you know, the pause, you know, the miracle of watering the house plants, of waking up in the morning. 
and how to be ever more habitually surrendered over to that and share it with others. That's my, that's, that's my sense of it. And see, that is the depth. That's the abyss-like depth that the immediacy of the present moment is manifesting. And I can learn to, I can learn to abide. Another point in this too, I think, is I waver in my abiding. I abide and then I get reactive. And so I'm trying to live by the abyss of love that unwaveringly is giving itself to me in my unwavering ways. Because otherwise, if I think I have to stop wavering and always stay abiding, it's the ego setting up another norm for itself. Mm -hmm. But what if there's no norm? Thomas Merton once said in the monastery, he said, we're all walking around with a secret little list in our heart. Once I stop doing this and this and this, God and I will really get down to business. Once I do this and this, he said, to realize with God, there's no list. Why do we have a list? Because we can't bear being unconditionally loved because there's no control in it. We can only bear being conditionally loved. And then you realize that this unconditional love is already making a move on you in the midst of your conditioned love, which is the gift of tears. Mm. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. James, I was struck by one of your phrases, the path of longing. And uh, it feels like there's so much in that. I wonder if you could say more. Yes. Let's say that, let's say there's the longing to be able to be freed from the sources of suffering that still hold us in their grasp. You know, there's that. And it's and a lot of healing. It's the longing of that that brings people to seek healing from that. That's true. But there's another kind of longing. There is the longing in our heart that we realize is an echo of God's infinite longing for us, that, that God freely chooses to long for us. Mick told a Magbird, one of the mystics, we were just doing the Turning to the Mystics podcast. Yes, and I want to emphasize, Jane, we haven't talked about your podcast. Yeah, yeah, I want yeah. to make sure people hear about it. Yeah, Turning yeah, yeah. to the Mystics, it's yeah. beautiful. So, so Mick told the Magbird. Yes. I wouldn't let it get out of here without mentioning that. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so Mick Taylor Magbird says she's missing. She says, <laughs> she said, God revealed to her that God has freely ch chosen to be so hopelessly in love with her. God honestly doesn't know if God could handle being God without her. <laughs> and she says back, take me home with you. I'll be your physician forever. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. They got the, there's a free act of infinite boundarylessness. And the boundaryless boundarily gives itself to us as the beloved. St. John of the Cross says, the mystical poet, St. John of the Cross in the dark night, who's been touched by this love and he can't consummate it. And he says to love, he said, it is not fair that you do not carry off this heart that you have stolen, for I live not where I live. And then in the fidelity to the heartache of the grace longing, the longing is unexpectedly consummated. And it's not consummated in the word, how I put it poetically, it's not consummated just that there are moments where it's consummated. But it's consummated of knowing that God's the infinity of your unconsummated longings. That's a great insight, I think. Nothing's missing. Any <laughs> yeah, the, there's a there's a almost judo-like move or or recognition that you've pointed to several times, James, so I just want to name it, and that is that the, the very th the, there comes a recognition that the very things we think are uh, of ours are barriers, 
can be recognized as the expressions of the, the infinite divine, etc. And the game changes at that point. It does. See, I think that's why Paul says there's a thorn in the flesh, see, the hurting place. He, could, he doesn't tell us what it is. And he asks God to remove it. And God, in effect, says, leave it there. That's your teacher. Because the thorn in the flesh is your reminder of your infinite dependency on my infinite mercy for you. And also, the hurting place in ourself, everyone has their own little thing they can't get past. It holds the key to empathy. Because mm -hmm. I realize that my powerlessness doesn't belong to me. My powerlessness unites me to the powerlessness of all of humanity that ultimately is powerless to realize this love that's infinitely in love with it and its powerlessness. It's so paradoxical, you know, it's so... We are broken, and that's okay. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get that. Yeah, exactly. We used to keep this Zen calendar in the kitchen, Maureen and I. There was always a little Zen saying every day. One of the Zen sayings is, a, a, a child with a burning candle approaches an old man. And the old man looks at the candle and asks the little boy, where did that come from? The little boy blows out the candle and says, tell me where it went. I'll tell you where it came from. <laughs> and so there's a kind of clarity where the, the, the linear logic falls away. And, we're, and I think there's states of awe. Where the, it isn't that we choose to be silent, but we're silenced by the, by the immediacy of the very thing that we're talking about like this. I just want to follow up on you, your point there of the James of the, the not knowing the mystery. There's a beautiful section in your, in your book or your memoir, The Healing Path. Actually, there's so many beautiful sections in it, but the one I want to allude to is a prayer you mentioned, which I'd never heard of before, but you call it the set-aside prayer. That is the prayer to set aside what I think I know yeah. and understand yeah. in order yeah. to enter into this mystery. And I just by way of context, I have come to think that the recognition of that we live in mystery is just yeah. a very profound and important one. And I, I know for me, for many years, there was this little niggling part of me that I, I hadn't recognized, but a certain there was literally a moment of recognition. I can still remember sitting on the living room couch when it happened, when I realized that my sense of I just don't understand wasn't a neurotic problem. It was a profound recognition of the way things are. And it was such a relief. And, and you have this beautiful little set-aside prayer. Let me set aside what I think I know, because actually it's bottomless mystery. Yeah. That's the dimension of the 12 steps to the set-aside prayer. Is, uh, here's another way that I put it, too, like this. I love this thing by Thomas Merton. He says, to know that when it comes to matters of the spirit, we begin by understanding that we're infinitely understood and poverty of spirit that I'm infinite. And so really it's a deeper way to understand what it means to understand. In the ego, we think to understand means to comprehend. Well, I get it. And that's, that's real. There's a level of that. But there's also a deeper way to understand, which is the deep acceptance of the limits of what I can understand. But the acceptance of it is itself a deeper kind of understanding. Mm. Gabriel Marcel says a certain attitude must be brought to the portals of thought. It's humility. And in that humility is the flow or the glow of insights or realizations or growth. You know, it's like back in the good old days when I was holy, it was crisp, it was used to be so clear. But for quite some time now, I've become perplexed, you know, <laughs> in some kind of freeing way. 
you know, I like inner clarity. Yeah. James, I, I have a, you know, we're, the podcast is called Deep Transformation. And Heidi always tries to remind me to ask this question. Sometimes I do forget in the flow of the moment. But tell us two parts about your own personal practice. You know, how you get up in the morning and how you stay open to God and what it's evolved to now, if, if you want to. Or what would you recommend to us? And I would say most of the people listening to this are consciously on the path. So what would you recommend as, as a daily practice and a, and a way to open our hearts up to, to the divine? And I've heard you speak about this a lot, and it's really, really good. Okay. Let me make an overarching statement first in terms of fidelity to the tradition. And really all traditions teach this. I'll put it in the Christian language. Then I'll apply it how I practice these days. First of all, we, we begin, we find a quiet place for the rendezvous. And we remind ourselves that St. Augustine said that God is all about us and within us, closer to us than we are to ourselves. And we're sitting there that with God's help, we might deepen our experience, understanding and response to God's oneness with us. And how we start, this is, uh, in the Turning to the Mystics podcast, one of the mystics I talk about is Guigo II, a medieval monk who wrote a book called A Ladder of Monks. It's a ladder of rungs that goes up to heaven. And the first rung of the ladder is Lexio Divina. And Lexio Divina, if you open, uh, you find a word that in your heart, you find in those words, God's voice directly speaking to you. So it might be the words of scripture, it might be a poet, it might be a saint, whatever the word is. So I'm going to use the words of Jesus as an example. Jesus says, do not be afraid, I'm with you always. So you would believe in your heart as you read it, See, sustained receptivity to a beauty not yet thought about. See, do not be afraid. I'm with you always. So even before you think about it, your heart already knows that it's beautiful. That stance of receptive listening, T.S. Eliot says, to hope too soon is to hope for the wrong thing. To think too soon is to think the wrong thing. And you learn to abide on the ladder of this attentive listening in which God is accessing you in the beauty of that word and the truth of that word, that God is, not only are you with me now as I sit here in your presence, but you're with me always in every moment of my life, on up to the moment of my death and beyond. You're with me always, not to be afraid. I sit with that. The next step is, in effect, I'll say it poetically, God then says to us, now that I've spoken to you, you talk to me. What do you think? So meditation then, discursive meditation using thoughts and images, is you're reflecting with God on reflections that are born out of attentive listening. And you might journal this out. This is very sincere, very sincere. So you might say to God, well, God, as you well know, I'm afraid of many things. I am afraid. And I'm afraid because they're scary. By the way, Jesus, you were afraid. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you sweat blood. You knew what was going to happen. So are you telling me not to be afraid? Or are you telling me not to be afraid of being afraid? That you're one with me in my fear and sustaining me in my fear like this. Help me see, with this. And when you ask for help, that's the prayer from the heart. See, So there's this, this meditation, this exchange, meditatio. And then the prayer is from the heart center. Help me with this. Because I can't do this without you. Unless you help me to find my way to you, I cannot find my way to you. Unless you help me to 
know that you're already unexplainably one with me. I can never sit here. And then as you end the sitting practice, you ask God for the grace not to break the thread of that as you go through your day. And you go through your day. And you notice the thread breaks many times. But here's the difference. You're more conscious that it's breaking. And you're more conscious that though it breaks from your end, it never breaks from God's end. And so the next day you come back, you sit down, you open the scriptures like, like an unlearned child. Here I am again, Lord. Where did we leave off yesterday? Oh, yes. Not to be afraid. And so the practice of meditation is any act habitually entered into with your whole heart that takes you to the deeper place. So that has to be a practice because it's subtle. See, the essential never imposes itself. The unessential is constantly imposing itself. But by a higher order imperative of the awakened heart, which is the freedom of practice. See, I'm going to sit, A, this would be the 11th step. And little by little by little, all life can become practice. It become an habituated meditative state. And that's one of the pillars of the way of the practice. The next pillar of the practice, the threefold practice traditionally. So find your practice and practice it. Next is find your teaching and follow it. The teaching is a teaching that bears witness to this. It bears witness to this. It bears witness to the already perfectly holy nature of the mystery, what it is to be. In the scriptures or Thomas Merton, he says, the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness the silence of the spheres. So you take the saint or the scriptures that bears witness to the teaching of the divinity of the immediacy of things. And then what we find in the mystics, in the mystic teachers, it offers guidance in it, in the path. There is this thing, but how do I, what's the path that guides me along the path like this? And little by little, you realize not just that all life becomes practice, you realize that life itself becomes your teacher. You're being taught by life. God is the infinity, the immediacy of your life. And last, next is your community is the third pillar. Find your community and enter it. And your main community is God. But the community is the healing community of kindred spirits. It's just one other person in whose presence you're not alone on this path like this. And little by little by little, you discover the whole world is your community. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son and he walked this earth filled with infinitely loved broken people, and we walk it. And so that's the traditional way. And what happens with practice and teaching is at a certain point, this is where it becomes mystical. Let's say you're sitting there in the sincerity of your reflection, fear not, I'm with you always. And each of the mystics is very concerned about this precise point. I'm going to quote just Teresa of Avila as one example. She says, you're sitting there this, this way in your meditation, and she says, all of a sudden, you realize that your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions. She said, imagine a basin filling with water and it overflows. But what if the basin, instead of overflowing, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger? And you realize that's what's happening to your heart. That the love of God's flowing into you, but it's not overflowing. Your heart's being enlarged to the infinite proportions of the love that's flowing into you. And the prayer becomes surrendering to that. If you turn to look at it on purpose, it goes away. But if you just return again to the sincerity, there it is again, and you yield to it this way. And so each mystic has a, a subtle turning point of how to discern that we're being drawn into wordless communal states beyond words and images, and how to understand it and how to cooperate with it. Thomas Merton once said he believes there's many people in the world that are being called to these more unitive states. 
but they have no one to help them understand what's happening to them. So that's the traditional way of contemplation and so on. So for me, in my book, Christian Meditation, I lay out these steps of meditation that I just did here. For me, it's it's changed. I used to have a meditation. I'll, I'll say where I am now. I get up in the morning and I come out to the living room, get a cup of coffee. Where, I, where my rocking chair is in the living room is where Maureen died almost three years ago. And in house hospice, my chair is right where she died. Her ashes are right next to me, like this. And I light a candle on her ashes because I sense her deathless presence is with me. And I look out the window at the ocean. She and I lived here for 30 years. And I, I sip my coffee and I have my fountain pen and I have a text the way we're talking right now. I have a text in John of the Cross or Eckhart or Jesus or the Buddha, whatever. And I sit with it. I read the text and then I sit with it. And I say to myself, how have I or how am I experiencing this? What's it asking out of me? And if I were to say it, how would I say it? Then how could I, this is what my, I'm doing it right now. This is what I consider teaching. See, how could I find the words that would convey this? I find I don't know the words. So I have to sit and wait. And when the flow of words come in the waiting, I, I, I feel like a scribe, like writing it out. You know, it's a slow going. It's like a. I'll end with this story on this one part of it. When I left the monastery and I wrote Merton's Palace of Nowhere on Ultimate Identity, and I wrote to Dan Walsh, who taught medieval metaphysics at the monastery, it had a deep effect on me. And I said, How can I communicate this to people out here? That we subsist in God like light subsist in flame. How could we? He said, You can't communicate it, that it will communicate itself through you. If you're convinced in what you say, and if you are what you say, and you know it'll be communicating itself because someone, the people listening will know something very deep within them that matters very much is being addressed. Then each unto each, there's a shared recognition of something that no one in the room can explain. And I often found on these silent retreats, on some of the most moving moments of the retreat, I always invite, are there any questions? And because of the nature of the, the talk, which is the way I'm talking to you now, they raise their hand and they share these vulnerable things, you know, about tenderness or about loss or about beauty or about, and they can feel it's safe to be like that in this room with people like this. And, and that's, that's passing on the lineage, heart to heart, heart to heart, like that. So that, that's how I, that's how I sit. And sometimes I'll sit, with one page for a couple months. I don't know how to get past it, but I don't need to get past it. Mm -hmm. I just need to keep returning mm -hmm. over and over to my inability to do it and waiting because God's the infinite. How I put it is that the, the unitive way does not consist of mastering some subtle form of meditation, but rather consists of learning not to do violence to the fragility of our waiting because God's the infinity of my inability. And I surrender to that. And then when I surrender to that, the words come. So that's how I practice. I also felt when I was with Maureen, we were so close to each other, our being together was practice. I also feel when I was with patients in therapy, doing deep trauma work, I sense it was practice for me. I just, I just sense it's practice. And when I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't sleep and lie in the dark, experience it as practice. I get a walk <laughs> And anyway, that's how I pray. Very beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Talk about you've certainly taken the words uh, "pray without ceasing" to yeah. heart. Yeah. Yes, yes, 
And I'd like to add something. I cease. But the prayer is knowing that the prayer ceaselessly gives itself to me in my ceasing. You know, because <laughs> I have to tie my shoes and try to get out the door. And, and the Buddhists say, don't grow a second head. Don't grow an enlightened head on top of your ordinary head. But rather, know that the boundaryless nature of the Dharma, like the boundaryless nature of the ordinary, how holy it is. Yeah. And James, at this stage of life, can you say something about your attitude towards towards death? Yes, you know, let me read it to you. Let me read the first page and a half of the memoir. Mm. And I'm sitting next to Maureen here in the living room in the house hospice. So I was sitting next to her while she was dying. And that's how I start the book. So let me read it. Then I'll tell you about my sense of death. These reflections mark out a path, a way of life, in which we as human beings may be healed from all that hinders us from experiencing the steady, strong currents of divinity that flow on and on in the bittersweet alchemy of our lives. As I write this introduction, I'm immersed in these intimate depths, sitting next to my beloved wife, Maureen, as she is, lies here dying in the final stages of Alzheimer's. Even though she is unconscious and cannot open her eyes to look at me, I believe she can hear me as I speak from my heart in whispered words. Just now I told her that the waves of unbearable pain and crying that from time to time overtake me seem to soften a little as I learn to be more accepting of the immensity and mystery of her death. After all, immensity and mystery have been woven into our years together from the very start. The slowness with which she is gently fading away from me seems continuous with the slow setting of the sun out over the ocean, which is just beyond this darkening room where Maureen and I have lived and shared so much over the past 30 years. Over the years, Maureen and I would often share insights with each other. And one, I just now told her in whispered words as she lay dying about something I was so struck that Thomas Merton told us at the monastery. An old lay brother had just died and he was talking to us about death. And he said to us, he says, it's very helpful to realize that when we die, we don't go anywhere. We don't orbit the earth a few times and take off and go to God somewhere. Because in God, as scripture tells us, in God, we live and move and have our being. In God, we're living in the vast interiority of God. So all those who cross over into death are here. All the angels are here. And we can't see the dead for the same reason we can't see God. Our finite eyes can't see the oceanic immensity of the interiority in which we take every breath that we take. We don't go anywhere. And when she died, I watched her as she was dying. And what really struck me is that when we're born, our first act is we take a deep breath and let out a big scream. We cry. And we go through all our days inhaling, exhaling. And our last act on this earth is we exhale and we don't inhale. She exhaled and she didn't inhale. So then death is not a, it's not an event, it's a cessation of the temporal self. So the body dies. And after she died, the pain, we were so close, literally for months, I walked back and forth here in the living room screaming out loud, like I loved you so much, I loved you so much. And then it, over time, it softened. And I began to sense, you know, that's not true. It isn't that I loved you so much. I still love you so much. The fact you're dead, I haven't stopped loving you because like you and I have talked about over and over, we're eternal. We're the beloved. 
empty. We don't die. The body dies, but we're eternal. And so over the time since she's died, I sense her deathless presence here with me, with the beloved and the nearness of death and the dying. And so I think this then too, sitting with people in therapy, that how can I learn to die of love at the hands of love until there's nothing left of me but love? How can I learn to die to anything less than in God's infinite union with me as the sole basis of my security and identity? Where can I learn not to give authority to anything less than this infinite love? How can I die to that in me? And how can I die to the need to be able to do that? Because God takes me infinitely to herself in my inability to do that. And if I've died over and over in my heart in that way, within myself, the people in therapy in life, there's a certain mysterious sense that when my own death, I'm 80 years old, my death is in the mail. You know, I'm not stuck here forever. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> in some deep sense, when that last breath comes, it's, it's on the way. In some deep sense, nothing will happen if I've already died to anything less than the deathless love that is itself my very life. And that's my sense of it. So with my own death, I, I ask to be spared. The dying process can be very painful with disease. Alzheimer's is terrible. So I ask with God's grace will give me the strength if I have to go through that and I might. But I trust that death itself. Here's another way that I put it all in with this too. You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the stages of dying, like denial, bargaining, anger, depression. All those are the ego coming to the its own demise. It's understandable. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, but in acceptance, she's not everybody comes to acceptance. And I put it this way, if you're sitting next to the dying loved one who's in a state of acceptance, when you look into their eyes, you're looking into the gate of heaven. It's freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death, like this. And that's how I see death for myself. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. And James, I might add that part of your practice is doing what you're doing now, sharing with us, you know, in your writings. I mean, that's a whole other subject for a whole other day, but I can, I can sense the depth of the spirit and the work that you've done and the grace that you've received. It's very clear. Dr. Bob, let me get this in. When he was first introducing me to you, he said, this guy oozes God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I, I feel oozed upon him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want to share something. This is a good example. It's happening right now. <laughs> it's like, I can't, I can't believe I'm talking like this from a traumatized kid from Akron, Ohio. Give me a break. <laughs> See, and you know, on the podcast, we just cleared 90,000 listeners on the podcast. Beautiful. You know why? Because people are hungry for this, but it's not coming from me. It's flowing through me. All I'm doing is passing on what was passed on to me. That's all I'm doing. So as it catches fire in you, it might pass through you and to others. And that's how the lineage is passed on, I, I think. Yeah, what a grace this is, seriously. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And James, you mentioned just now coming from a, a traumatized past, which and you're reading your memoir. I mean, uh, this is one of the most horrific childhoods I've, I've read in some ways. I mean, oh, on the 
scale, ACE, ACE scale adverse childhood experiences. I mean, it's up there like few are. You, and yet at this, at certain point, you were able to, through much of your life, you've offered and surrendered to the divine. And I, I wondered, presumably there must have been, a, and, and I think in your memoir it shows, there was a profound, what's called learned helplessness through that inescapable trauma you grew up in. And I, I wondered, is this, was this some way that the the learned helplessness transmuted into a profound capacity for offering and surrendering surrendering yes that's a very good this is my understanding i put this in the memoir too it's one of my earliest memories lying alone in the dark at night listening to my father hit my mother outside the door i was sad because maybe earlier that day he hit me or yelled at me and I knew if tomorrow he wanted to yell or hit me, he would and no one would stop it. I was maybe five years old, six years old. But when my mother would tell us, pray to ask God for the strength. So I was lying there in the dark, and I prayed to God the way frightened children pray. And to me, my experience is, is that God heard my prayer. And in a moment I can't remember, God merged with me in the dark. So when I woke up the next morning, and went out the door, the trauma went on, but it was very different for me because my father thought he was hitting me, but he was really hitting that other little boy that people can see. He didn't know the real me had been taken by God to a refuge in God my father didn't even know about. Later, when I became a psychologist, I learned that I was dissociating due to terminal complex post-traumatic stress disorder. It gets internalized either as somatic disorders, eating disorders, and so on, as personality disorders like borderline splitting or dissociating. So I was dis- I dissociated. If something is too scary to bear, it's still true. And you're a child and you can't leave. You find some way to survive. And so I dissociated. But the fact I dissociated doesn't mean that God didn't come to me in the dark. Later, it was years later, I had to learn not to depend on dissociating, who survived. When I was first seeing Maureen, we started moving in together and getting very close. And she was so strong in AA recovery. She said to me, it would break her heart if anything happened to our emerging relationship. She said, but living with me, it was like living, I I was living in the back of a cave somewhere. And over and over again, I had to go into the cave to find me and bring me out. And I would go right back in again. She said, I won't do it rigorous honesty. She says, if you don't get therapy to be healed from the root of trauma, she says, I won't see you anymore. I can't do it. And because I knew she was right and I didn't want to lose her, I went into a very intense therapy where I learned not to depend on dissociating. But my point is this. It isn't as if impairments are not impairments, like dissociating, they are. But sometimes God actually enters through the wounded place and finds us in the wounded place, and sustains us in the wounded place. It's true that unless we learn to move past our dependency on the woundedness, the fullness of God is is not in its fullness. That's true. But it's also true that God's mysterious ways is wonders to behold, that God shines out through the lives of broken people in their broken places, which is the holiness of the poor, the holiness of the broken. You know what I mean? That's, That's a big insight, I think. Jesus was broken. 
And that's how the story culminates, you know, and he dies on the cross. He says that it's finished. And that's where the story really begins. I mean, that's right. And, and how could we, you know, I mean, that's coming from my, my Christian heart. How could I not want to be broken? I mean, how could I resist that or not honor that or accept that? It's, yeah. it's just. Yeah, here's how I put it. Here's how I put it, too. It says in the scriptures that when Jesus died, they pierced his heart with a lance and blood and water flowed out like at the birth of a child. And here's how I put it poetically. Then there was no more Jesus left in Jesus. And when there was no more Jesus left in Jesus, the only Jesus that was ever really there is manifested throughout the whole world. And Jesus says, come follow me. Sounds like a good idea to see where he's taking us. It's the crucifixion of our dreaded and cherished illusions that anything less than this infinite union with the infinite will ever be enough to put to rest the restless longings of our heart. And there's a, a, one more image about brokenness in this way. I use the image, imagine that someone calls you, you hadn't heard from him in years, say so you went to high school with the person and they're passing through town they want to meet. And imagine you've been blessed with a long-term, very deep love relationship. And you're talking to the person over lunch and you tell them about this relationship. You show the person their picture about their character and what you love about this person. And the person says, no, I don't mean that. Who is it that you know the person to be in your love for the person? And you know that you can't say it and your heart breaks when you try. And may we all be so blessed to be rendered whole by being so broken by the preciousness of the unsayable in our life. And I think that's another way, you know, the parable of being broken and whole and mercy and the mercy of God and being delivered. You know? mm -hmm. Amen. Mm. Oh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm wondering if there's anything else we want to bring up or whether this is a, an appropriate place to close. Anything you'd like to, to bring up, James? No, I think for this way, I'd, I'd like to bring up what a grace this has been for me. And the grace has been actually the fact that the two of you are so receptively grounded in what we're talking about. It creates, it's possible. And I know there are going to be many people listening to this. I talk about a monastery in cyberspace, you know, mm. a monastery without walls. And I think you know, the community is bearing, it's, it's finding words that embody and bear witness to this fullness that we all long for and how precious it is when we're in the presence of that which renews it in our self that's passing on the lineage. And so it's, uh, I thank you for the gift of the website that you have, Deep Transformation, and how many people it reaches, and for the gift of inviting me. And what a grace this has been this time we've had together. I mean, it's amazing, actually. And before we started recording, you said you're working on a book on the spiritual, transcendent, mystical depths of the Enneagram. Yeah. And I just want to publicly invite you to come back whenever you want to. You want to bounce your ideas off of us or just, you know, okay. talk about it. It would be a, a super gift in grace. Uh, you know, I would enjoy that. First, to this, maybe another podcast down the road when the book is out, if it comes, we'll see. I think it will. Is uh, to pr share the process with you about, about discernment. Noranyo and discernment, a psychological discernment, discernment of the ego illumined by faith, and then mystical discernment. I I would welcome a chance as I get into it that the th we could dialogue about. It. You could help me just by responding to the essence of what I'm trying to share. You know that that would be lovely. Yeah.
Beautiful, beautiful. And I want to mention again your own podcast, uh, Turning to the Mystics, where you really explore and dialogue about really some of the greatest Christian mystics. And I'm I'm just delighted you have 90,000 people listening. That really speaks to what you call a beautiful term, depth deprivation of our culture. Yeah. And next year, I'm going to start introducing poets, also Mm. the mystical dimension of the poetic voice. And also certain thought, you know, I want to keep expanding out modalities. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And you you have so many gifts. Your book, The Healing Path, which you sent us both, is just a, it's such a powerful memoir. And of course, your your account, Merton's Palace of Nowhere, again, another gift. And and there are others. And your, your presence. James is just a gift. So thank you. I, I should I, I should add this. I'd like to add this too, is that uh, I, I gave some healing talks on the contemplative dimensions of the psychotherapeutic process, mm. and they're on the internet on Richard Orr's internet. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you, yeah. On the first draft I did with Tammy Simon was "Sounds True" with Carolyn Mace. It was the very first draft. Then a much more refined version got on the website, and I'm hoping to publish those too on the clinical you know on the healing process is another perspective of the healing process along with mystical sobriety so it's just it's an ongoing sharing i guess but yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so well james you may be 80 but i hope you're going to be around for quite a while because you've got a lot of gifts to <laughs> still to give oh. so may it be so yeah, yeah. Be so yeah may it be so yeah James, it's and you've given us such a gift, and everyone listening, such a gift. It's just a, a joy to be, to be with you and be used with God, yeah, <laughs> by yeah. you. So thank you so much. So uh, deep gratitude. Thank you, thank you, both of you. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.